1: It's 1936 and you are at the movies as the images form from the projector and you and your fellow Americans can see a crowd of cheering citizens on the screen and a stately convertible pulls up. And yes, it is President Roosevelt brimming with the vigor of a re-election campaign. You can see that he is in front of City Hall in Hyde Park, New York, his home, then cut to the inside of the City Hall and FDR, a crowd watching behind him. His son, James, holding his right arm in his. This was FDR's M.O. at public events, given his paralysis. Son, James, would help him up. He is in front of the clerk, and the clerk says, Name? Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he responds. Excuse me, the clerk says. Could you please repeat that? No doubt, a giggle goes through the crowd. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And thus... FDR is like everybody else. He has to wait in line. He has to give his name to vote like every other citizen of the United States, man and woman, in 1936. It's great theater, of course, and something that he excelled in. He was the master of a form of communication we don't know about, but that was so important then and actually still plays a role today that we'll talk about. Franklin Roosevelt also used radio to great advantage, but there was another president before him, a surprising president perhaps, who really paved the way as the radio president. We don't think of Calvin Coolidge as much of a media president, the man who called for tax cuts, reduced government, the business of America is business. He was also an early adapter to a new medium, radio, an invention that for him came just in time, perhaps, to make him relevant at all. See, older presidents would have to really have a good set of lungs and a booming voice if they wanted to get somewhere in politics. It was the politician's tool in the 19th and early 20th century. Warren Harding, right before Coolidge, could hit the back seats with his very operatic voice, talking in broad terms about Americanism and a return to normalcy. Speeches were delivered then directly to audiences. Woodrow Wilson would be the first to use a public address system, an electronic one, in 1919 in a speech in San Diego advocating the League of Nations. Now, Harding would install one of those in the White House, but prior to that, presidents, if they spoke, had the same acoustics as John Adams or Abraham Lincoln did. Full throat to the crowd. Coolidge couldn't hit the back seats. He had a very reedy Raspy, you might say, but consistent voice. The business of America is business. That kind of thing. Lousy retail politician. But as he himself said, I was lucky that I came in with the radio. I can't make a rousing speech to a crowd. With a microphone in front of him. He didn't need to do any of this operatics. He just talked. He made 16 addresses on radio in his five years as president, including several during his 1924 re-election, never mentioning his opponent's name, Davis or La Follette. Just talking about general topics, in fact, in these speeches, not politics. Education, citizenship. He even did a speech on sportsmanship. These speeches, while playing, helped him to build a reputation as Cool Cal in a time of big change in America. This man speaking simply into the microphone. And it was intentional. Coolidge also held a lot of press conferences, 500 of them. See, despite his image, he was cool, but not quiet. He knew how to play the media. A New York Times reporter said, the president was quick to see the possibility of the new science of radio. A poll in 1927 put Calvin Coolidge as the fourth most popular radio personality, beating Will Rogers. So good was he that DeForest Phonofilms tried something new. They used the President of the United States in a talkie, a film with sound. There wasn't much to it. It was just Calvin Coolidge on the White House lawn reading from a piece of paper and not looking at the camera or the audience at all. And there you see where Coolidge was right at home in radio and was not able to graduate to this new visual medium, the newsreel. From the 19-teens to the 1960s, the newsreel prior to a movie would be the visual connection to the world for most audiences. Twice weekly, in 20,000 theaters across America, tens of millions of Americans, a TV-like audience, would get their news and see the world, including the politicians they would vote for, from these services. Hearst, Fox, MGM, Paramount News, all of them had newsreels. Time Magazine got into the game with the March of Time, a newsreel magazine. The Hindenburg, the Lindbergh Baby, Amelia Earhart's activities and disappearance, Hitler, Stalin, Pearl Harbor, these were all newsreel stories. There were even all-news theaters in New York City and other places in the 1930s. Art Deco newshounds could get their news fix. FDR used these images effectively. We saw him viewers at the time saw him and heard him speak deliver his speeches to congress and as in that newsreel even saw him vote rob from st louis emailed me and said i am thinking about the 2008 campaign of obama how he was able to use targeted media looking back that was one of the key components of a successful campaign says rob looking back what other presidential campaigns were influenced by one campaign utilizing media in a way that was innovative? The Daisy ad of 1964, the Kennedy-Nixon debate of 1960, Jefferson's use of newspapers to go negative on Adams, the Harrison-Tyler use of songs, so asks Rob. Now, I think those are all great ones that you mentioned there. Uh, The Kennedy-Nixon debate of 1960, I mean, John Kennedy's campaign that decided to write to Richard Nixon and challenge him to a TV debate, knowing that their man could probably handle that a little better. So excellent use of the new media. It was not the only story in 1960. You know, look at some of the states that Kennedy won in, and some of those are Deep South states where it was really the Democratic Party machinery coming out that helped him carry him over. It was a very close election. So the idea that the debate happened and Kennedy won the election is probably false, but it certainly made Kennedy a legitimate candidate when he was running against the vice president of the United States as a senator who arguably had not achieved that much. But of course, in your question, you mentioned the Harrison-Tyler campaign of 1840 running against President Martin Van Buren. And you can just picture one of those giant medicine balls rolling down the street of some wig-leaning town with crowds shouting, Who has heard the great commotion, motion, motion, all the country through? It's the ball a-rolling on for Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. And then the negative attack, and with them we'll beat little Van. Van is a used-up man, of reference to President Martin Van Buren, and then, as is now, presidents get blame when the economy is not so good. These songs were used to great effect. But in 1840, the other thing they did was merchandising. And again, that had been used before, but the 1840 Whigs did a really good job of it, including hard cider jugs. See, the, the Viren Buren campaign had made a huge mistake in attacking Harrison is someone who sits and drinks hard cider. Well, that's what the average person drank, so they said, what does the president drink? Wine? So they started handing out hard cider jugs with William Henry Harrison's image. Great stuff. Never during the campaign did they happen to mention that William Henry Harrison was born in a mansion. Yet was it this medicine ball and this cider jug, or was it just the poor economy? Was it the TV ads, or was it the frustration with the Truman administration and poor economy in 1952? Was it social media, or was it President Bush's low approval ratings, the Iraq War and the financial panic of 2008 that brought Obama into office? Is it the media, or the message, or the man, or the times? I think these are questions that wrap around this topic. Is it that a candidate really used the media well, or that a new media arrived and it's something any winning candidate to even have a chance has got to be a master of that media. Of course, you look at the contrast between Dwight Eisenhower's TV ad and Adelaide Stevenson's TV ads in 1952, and there's no comparison. The first true TV campaign. Stevenson speaks for a half hour right into the camera, you know, on very long meandering points. Ike speaks... Really quickly, with well-produced commercials, makes a quick statement, and then we go to the jingle. Yet, TV, did it really elect Eisenhower? Or was it because he was a popular general who had just successfully executed D-Day and, and the European theater of World War II? I asked the same question of the 2008 election. On Obama, I think social media helped him, of course, especially in his primary campaign, especially raising money. But did social media really beat McCain? Or was it the economy, the panic of 2008, the war in Iraq, low approval rating of President Bush, and other factors? I suppose elections are multi and you have to look at everything, and this is one of many things. I just do wonder if McCain had suddenly used social media better if he would have been the winner. It's hard to imagine that in the 2008 campaign. When President Obama arrived in office in 2008, one of the things that a lot of journalists were saying that kind of caught me a little bit was, He's got, you know, several million emails. He's got the longest email list, you know, of, well, not that email's been around a long time, but any president ever. And he's going to be able to use that to lead. He, they even suggested perhaps that he could work around Congress. And being some a student of the history and a student of the presidency, I just was scratching my head at that one. So there's just absolutely no way. And because in many ways, email and social media are at odds with the presidency. The presidency is an office that is very individual. It forces the president to be secret at times, a lot of secret meetings, and it is an office that requires compromise. Social media gives the impression that you are intimate with the person that you're linked in with, say, and it makes it difficult, makes it great for connecting with the base during a campaign when you're speaking rhetoric, but when you have to make that compromise, Does the social media connection you have help? And I do wonder if it, you know, say when he made the compromise with Mitch McConnell, extended the Bush tax cuts. Did it help that he had millions of emails at that point? Or were people unsubscribing? You know, obviously, this is a president who has had some trouble poll ratings. I do question a little bit about that strength in social media. I think he's done a good job with it. But I think this election will be decided on other things. But I think those two presidents top my list in terms of presidents using media. You know, Cal Coolidge using that radio, where he's a guy that would be a very difficult personality to run in any circumstance. I mean, Republican Party politicians were kind of afraid to bring him out uh, on the campaign trail, but knowing how to use a microphone really helped his uh, presidency. And Franklin Roosevelt, with those newsreels. And I want to bring, I do like your question, Rob, because it focused me on this fact that a lot of the documentaries we see now a History Channel, what are they using? They're using newsreel because that was the visual medium of the time. The New Deal got very good coverage both at the time and even now, I think, in the presentations that we see, because we're seeing the, quote, video that was created by new deal favoring agencies and you know the the roosevelt campaign and the democrats etc when we think about the new deal the image in your head is most likely a newsreel image and that's how it's remembered in history and events that went farther back for which there wasn't as much newsreel you we don't have that visual image of fdr's use of newsreel was so successful that there were people going to the movies to go see the president That's how it was in the 1930s. Oddly, that medium has still continued today. And you look at other presidents, I think Reagan was the master of that TV news that we had during the 80s, which was President Speaks at noon, and it's on 6 o'clock and 11 o'clock. Little soundbite, great image, done. Clinton was probably the master of the opposite, which is the cable TV, where there's more time and he was very emotive and could go on a half hour about a subject and I feel your pain and things like that, where they're not gonna just give you the quick soundbite anymore. There's more time and talk show and with the cable TV. The only limit I would put on that is to go as far as to say it wins the campaigns for them. Probably not. Well, before all this technology was around, a newspaper and the word of mouth were the only way a president could be heard. But what didn't change is the decision about what to communicate and how. Do you ever get into a conversation with someone and you'd like to wrap it up and you sort of say, well, it was nice talking to you, even though the conversation wasn't quite over from the other person's perspective? That's a way to understand kind of what George Washington was doing in 1796 when he issued his farewell address. Remember, nothing in the Constitution says a president has to give a farewell address when they leave office. Nonetheless, Washington had a problem. Electors would vote soon. He might be considered for a third term. Despite his desire to retire, to leave the partisan atmosphere with his reputation intact, Washington couldn't just issue a statement that said, please don't consider me for a third term. That would be presumptuous and assume people were considering that. If he was nominated, though, he couldn't refuse. He'd win, probably, and have to do... Four more years, right at the point when he was losing his immunity from political attack, which he had earned by virtue of his great service as general and savior of the country. It was only the most partisan voices that were doing that, Tom Paine, Benjamin Franklin Bach, that actually attacked Washington in print, and a great backlash to themselves. But four more years, maybe it would not be. Jefferson and Madison were keeping their comments in letters, in private, and also kept a healthy respect for Washington himself, though they suspected in his old age he was being used by Hamilton and others. So... Washington decided, instead of waiting to be nominated or not nominated, instead of issuing a statement and all, he would just issue his farewell and assume it was done. It was not delivered from the porch of his house in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia. It was written and printed in friendly Philadelphia newspapers relayed around the nation. In his farewell address, Washington does address the business at hand, that he is resolved to decline being considered among the number of those out there of whom a choice is to be made. It's 1796 election. Pick someone else, he's saying. He hints that he had indeed wanted to retire four years earlier, but hostility with France and England at war with each other required him to stay. Now he seeks, as he says, the shade of retirement. He expresses his gratitude for the people whose support, he said, propped up my efforts, which he said, I shall carry The remembrance of that to my grave. Here I should stop. Yet George Washington does not stop there. And that's why we know the farewell address today, because it goes on for several more newspaper columns. He wishes to give advice to this nation, he says. As would a friend. And if we read that farewell address, we're to learn a little bit of these words of wisdom. He says to avoid entanglements with foreign nations. We kind of know that in a shoe parties for better statesmanship. We kind of know that. But his address is more detailed. It does offer some arguments as to why. He puts a great deal of importance, first of all, on union. It is the real source of your independence and liberty, he says. You should guard it with jealous anxiety, discountenancing wherever any may suggest even a suspicion that it can be, in any event, abandoned, and indignantly frowning upon the first dawning of any attempt to alienate any portion of the country from the rest. Powerful support for the Union. He goes on to say the West needs the East. Which sometimes he calls the Atlantic for supplies and growth of population. The East or the Atlantic needs the West for a customer base and a source of supplies to trade with other nations on its ports. The North needs the South for agricultural supplies. The South needs the North for manufactures. The name of American, he says, this parting friend, must always exalt the just pride of patriotism more than any local discriminations. You're an American not just a Virginian, a New Yorker, an American first. Although Washington was the leader of the military component of rebellion, he argued strenuously against rebellion towards a democracy when discussing a free government, the offspring, he says, of our choice. The very idea of the power and the might of the people presupposes the duty of every individual to obey the established government. Then he says, let me warn you of the baneful effects of the spirit of party generally. When people form parties, he says, it turns into one faction versus another, sharpened, he says, by the spirit of revenge. Just having parties or factions that will come in and throw everybody out of office is bad. It serves, he says, to always distract the public councils and agitate the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms. That sounds a lot. Like our politics today, doesn't it? He notes how important it is for the Constitution to work that those entrusted with one of the constitutional branches should confine themselves to their respective constitutional spheres, avoiding an excess of one to encroach upon the other. In addition, he makes a statement of how religion and morality were important supports. Where is the security for property and life if religious obligation could desert the oaths? National morality cannot prevail in exclusion of religious principle, he says. Now, he doesn't mention a particular denomination. He doesn't even use the word Christian. But he is saying that, you know, you have to have good men who have some kind of religious obligation or morality to have a good government. Then the famous advice. In foreign policy, observe good harmony towards all nations. Avoid excessive partiality towards one nation or another. But he's specific. He says, Europe has a set of primary interests to which we have none, or a very small amount. Why quit our own to stand on foreign ground, he asks. Use my neutrality proclamation from 1793 as the index of my plan. He issued that statement when there was war with England and France. He issued that a statement that America would be neutral, 1793. Now he's saying, use that as a guide for all foreign policy. Hoping his advice will be of at least partial benefit, he asks Americans to enjoy this government. And this is something I think we should always keep in mind, he says, the ever-favorite object of my heart. Want to
2: learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
1: Well, thank you, Mr. Washington, and 214 years after these words were printed, have we seemed to ignore every word? Perhaps. Some of that took time to happen, though, because if you go back even 100 years ago after his message, we still were basically following that index, the Neutrality Proclamation and his advice on foreign policy. It was still the basis of American policy, say in 1912, uh, we weren't getting involved in the scraps of the Habsburg or the German kings. We did, of course, declare war on Spain and start colonies in the Spanish-American War, but we avoided siding with one European power over another. We didn't get involved in the Franco-Prussian War, for instance. The whole General Grant, you know, kind of talked about wanting to see the French lose based on their actions during the Civil War. Events in the world obviously changed, though, not the least of which is in Washington's map, those European nations were monarchies, save France. And France's directory government was not the kind of democracy that Washington wanted to model things on. So they weren't worth fighting for. Now those nations are democracies, and during World War I and World War II, we were fighting for them. Notice how Washington comes down hard on any attempt to break the Union. The North, the East, the West, the South, they need each other. His words give no quarter to any of the secession attempts throughout our history, be it the most well-known Confederacy of 1861 to 65, or the less eventful attempts to break off a Western Confederacy or a New England secession talked about at different times, Madison Presidency, Jackson's Presidency. Indeed, Lincoln would cite the farewell address of Washington and his warnings about the Civil War his warnings that the regions were indispensable to the Union. Lincoln's words didn't prevent the hot tempers of 1861, but Washington's statement was a foundation of pro-Union rhetoric as they sought to hold on to public opinion. Now, on the idea of parties, here's where we must rightly earn a poor grade. But that unraveling was already going on as soon as the new government was formed and while he was writing the words that would be printed in the newspaper. One thing to keep in mind— his farewell address was released before the 1796 election, before the Electoral College voted, not as presidents do now, before they leave office. It could be read, therefore, as a kind of veiled criticism of the Jeffersonian Republican Party that we're forming that would certainly monitor the government and assess candidates and office holders. Towing the party line, a politician adjusting his or her vote to the desires of the Philadelphia Democratic Republican Club of 1796, or even today's Democratic caucus. A politician who says, I can do this, but the Tea Party people will be upset. A politician who says, if I do this, I'll get a lot of liberal support. The senator who meets in a corner with Harry Reid and then switches from nay to yay. The phone call late at night from Mitch McConnell, and suddenly a senator tightens resistance to a plan they supported before. All of this would meet great disapproval with George Washington. Not just that. Our entire political vocabulary, the way we talk about politics, would be at odds with his farewell address. Democrats in the House will support the president's agenda. The president's party lost seats tonight. GOP House members support their nominee for president. Democrats have a majority in the House, and Biden made a visit to help push the legislation. The Republicans are lockstep on this measure. All of this talk would be nonsense to Washington if you're reading that farewell address. He didn't have a party, felt everyone who did this was giving power, given to them by the people, and trading it to despots, party bosses, or worse, he feared, a foreign power who would take control of these things. So, fortunately, that didn't happen, but we do have the party bosses. He was especially irked by the idea that a Congress would support a president because he was of their party, that a congressman would accept, say, you know, transportation Department grants that you might see today from the White House if they vote on an issue. This was the system not functioning. People not doing their constitutional obligations. It was a government diluted by faction. Yet, all of this would almost make Washington appear to be a dotting fool. Naive, right? Right? Come on, parties always form. It's the way people cooperate, gain advantage, they form alliances is what happens. The alternative is 400 different viewpoints at any given time. People will be at crosshairs. Yet when this text is read, Washington is not naive at all. He knows party support. He mentions it as a natural element of human nature, but he asks us to reduce it. He says it's even useful in a monarchy. It's not useful in a democracy. The weapon he calls for is public opinion. And that's where we probably really led Washington down, but it's not just a bunch of politicians in the federal city today or then that have done that. It's us as voters. How can politics not be controlled by today's official factions, the parties, each with huge infrastructures, the unofficial factions, the interest groups, the PACs? How can it not be when we consider a 60% vote in an election for president you know, to be something to celebrate about and even less for midterms? primaries, local and state elections. Politicians get brave when turnout goes up. They need their faction when they need to boost turnout, because voters aren't voting. So I think Washington's advice is very important. Daniel Rosa writes, you should do a podcast on Washington's farewell address, particularly the point about parties. Great suggestion. I think the farewell address is something that we all should review and reread from time to time. Perhaps it should be read from the well of the House of Representatives. Maybe not every day. It's kind of long. But I think in all seriousness, of all the things we could read, here is the man who kind of started it all, at least is the key investor in the beginning of the government. I think the first president, of all the people we might cite, of all the founders we might cite, the chair of the Constitutional Convention, the first commander-in-chief, has a unique credibility. He did then, and he always will. The one utterance of George Washington during the Constitutional Convention had to do with representation, lowering the amount of people per representative. Maybe it would make the document fairer. It would reduce animosity towards the Constitution. But representation has always remained geographic. That is, a representative covers a district, not necessarily a group of people, though Districts are adjusted to population. You're covering a plot of land. Lisa J. Harris writes I was pretty surprised to read about the place that the French, during their election, are giving their expatriates. And I can't see the U.S. doing anything similar. Well, thanks, Lisa. I think it's a great point. In the French election, there's actually a seat for French people. Who are living in London. So they have a representative in London. There's so many French people there. Well, that's one way to do it. The Dominican Republic, for instance, has a representative in the Dominican Parliament who represents those Dominicans in New York City. It's a large population. Colombians, similar to this, have a representative for overseas voters. In the US, You can get a ballot if you live outside the U.S. You fill out the proper forms and you're on time and everything like that. You follow your state's laws. But you don't get a representative for you as a person overseas, nor is there one congressperson for the overseas United States citizens, nor is there even any talk about it. Wouldn't seem likely. Nobody's talking about doing it at all. It shows how tightly anchored representation is to geography in the United States. You do not have a representative despite what your smiling congressman says in their glossy flyer. Your state has a representative or a certain number of representatives according to the population considered each decade. You are a factor only in that you can move or stay and affect the population of your state. This brings up an opening to again bring up the situation of the residents of the District of Columbia. 617,000 people And they're given three electoral votes, and that's not nothing because we've had some close elections, presidential elections recently, and that's an important amount. But when it comes to the making of laws, federal laws, no representation. 617,000s of people and a growing city, more importantly. That situation, I believe, has to be rectified, and it's it's a sad situation that it's not, that it remains unfixed. But I do think the reason it hasn't been among other political factors is that it demonstrates the primacy of geography-based representation. The federal city is a place controlled by Congress, so it doesn't get a representative. The consideration is not for the people there, it's, it's for the, the piece of land and whether it deserves a representative. All of these concepts, when you start thinking about a representative for people who are overseas, it gets you to see that there might be different ways to do representation, other than the ways that it had to be done during the original Constitution. Now, you need constitutional amendment to change any of this, but you could have representation for groups of people. You could have people select representatives no matter how they live. There's many different ways to do this thing. We just have the one. I have a whole podcast on representation in the archive, available dot www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Thanks for the opportunity to plug. Imagine a member of Congress... 1972 is elected, then he has a couple cabinet posts in the 80s and 90s, fired from one of them in the 80s, goes back to Congress, he's kind of in exile, switches parties, and then 2012 becomes president. That's kind of the situation that occurred with Winston Churchill. Elected in 1900, became prime minister in 1940. Samita Hudson writes, So, I am flipping between NPR and conservative stations and I hear about 10 people on Rush or Hannity talk about how Netanyahu was a, quote, Churchill and Obama was a, quote, Carter, which leads to my discussion questions. Was Churchill a great leader on issues other than the war? I mean, when he opposed health care, he was out of office. Two, why is Carter considered the picture of a failed president? The fuel crisis was not his fault. He had a failed rescue attempt in 1979. Stagflation wasn't his fault. It makes me believe that leaders are who they are for the times and not because of what they do. So writes Sumita Hudson. Thank you, Sabine. I think it's a a good question. Events, my dear man, events. So said a different British prime minister about governing, Harold Wilson. You come in with great skills. Jimmy Carter was a nuclear engineer, naval officer. Herbert Hoover was a mining engineer, logistical expert. And events hit that White House and it doesn't matter anymore. I believe the Harold Wilson theory, at least partially. Though a leader may also, in some cases, handle events better than others, or even control how events happen at all by what they do before, by their style, their intelligence, character, or the assets that they have. In Churchill and Carter, your radio talk show audience has picked up on probably the two polar opposites, at least in perception. Churchill on one hand, seen as the leader, and Carter, not so much. But the situation is more complex, and I think you're right to question it some it's worthwhile to consider that Winston Churchill, for instance, was not an elected prime minister. Well, the prime minister is never directly elected by the people in Great Britain, but he wasn't even standing, you know, as the leader of the party at the time of the most recent election so that voters would know that he was going to be leader if they voted conservative. He had just recently taken the minister of the Admiralty. That was a post that he had been fired from during World War One. Uh, 1914, after a disastrous amphibious landing. Now, in 1939, he was getting that post again after a long political exile. A couple of party switches, a lot of people not trusting him. It was not an election that put Churchill in office in 1940, but a group of four men in a room, Neville Chamberlain, Lord Halifax, uh, also known as Edward Frederick Lindsay Wood, a conservative majority whip, do not have his name. But those four men met in a room and selected Churchill, brought the name to the king, and Churchill formed a government.
0: Germany had invaded France. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th.
1: Neville Chamberlain at this point knew he could not lead. He wanted someone who could lead in war, and Churchill had established credibility there. He had been warning about the Nazi threat since the 1930s. People thought he was crazy back then. He was not in the political majority. The British people did not pick him. And indeed, five years later, after all his work, all his speeches, the resistance to the Luftwaffe, D-Day, negotiations with Roosevelt and Stalin, excellent diplomacy, the British people turned Winston out of office. But even that is not detailed enough and requires a little explanation. What Churchill had in 1940 was a unity government, Clement Attlee, leader of the Labor Party, had served as deputy prime minister. Attlee had actually opposed increased armament in the mid-1930s, increased naval buildup, but by the later decade had come around. He supported the war effort now and opposed any attempt of labor to criticize the unity government during wartime. He was part of that government. He was present with Churchill at many meetings. He was deputy prime minister. Churchill took him to Tehran in the meeting with Stalin and Truman towards the end of the war. There's a report that there was a funny moment where Stalin tells Churchill that, crazy to think that people would turn him out of office. They're never going to turn him out of office after victory at war. Well, of course, you shouldn't rely on a communist dictator to give you political advice. Because in 1945, the British electorate made Clement Attlee the prime minister now by giving labor a majority of the seats, and he put into place National Health Service, other social programs that British voters at that time wanted. Churchill's domestic agenda was not as appealing as his actions and inspiring rhetoric during the war, and you were five years now from his big moment during 1940, which I think he would have been elected, you know, certainly if the election occurred at that time. Britain's want to reform, and there's another factor. Returning vets had been organizing in the front lines. You know, there's all these men, they're talking to each other. There are a lot of people of a uh, working background. And so the front lines uh, for the British were hotbeds of political activity. And they used that organization when they came back, and that really helped the Labour Party. Yet it's not true to say that Churchill had no domestic political chops, no appeal to the voters at all, that he was just an appointed prime minister. And that's it, because in 1951, he came back, he won the election, and was reinstated as prime minister. And then he and his conservative parties won again in the mid-50s, But in 1955, due to health concerns, he handed over power to conservative Tony Eden. He remained a member of parliament for Woodford and, as late as 1959, was still in parliament. Of course, now in a wheelchair. He'd been first elected as the member for Oldham in 1900. Now, it's 1959. He's still in parliament. Amazing. The epitome of an inspiring politician during a crisis for his country. And so it's completely valid, I think. To compliment a politician by calling them a Churchill, especially when one is talking about a leader in foreign policy situation or a national security situation. It does not mean, though, that everybody in Great Britain was always happy to see Churchill in power. With Jimmy Carter, that events, dear man line of Harold Wilson really applies. Some of his ideas on energy, I think, were visionary He wanted to change Washington in a way a president hasn't really tried to do. In doing so, he ran up against economic issues, foreign foes, and his own Congress. And that took the form of Tip O'Neill, the Speaker of the House. Carter's team had run an anti-Washington campaign. They were going to change things, and they really believed it. Plus, Carter, as governor of Georgia, was a more conservative Democrat than most of the Democratic Party, particularly in 1970s. It, you know, it's common to cite Carter as a liberal now, particularly if you're of the Republican Party. But at that time, Carter was a very conservative, relatively speaking, not so much a conservative governor of Georgia, but a conservative within the National Democratic Party. Here's how Tip O'Neill explains it. I wanted some funding for roads in my district in Boston. (laughs) They did everything to block it. They treated a speaker this way. I knew we weren't going to get much done here. We could have done so much more. I expected a much more liberal President Carter than we got. It was Carter who warned about the deficit. I shared his concern, but winced as he cut down some of the social programs, including public works jobs. But it was more than that. His staff was weak, according to O'Neill. They didn't know the congressmen's names. They didn't return phone call. One great line O'Neill has, as far as the Carter staff was concerned, a House speaker was something you bought at Radio Shack. O'Neill's perspective might be a little biased, but to me, there's no better judge of how a president operated with Congress than the man that's in control of one of its branches. And I think Carter's inability to control legislation, to show wins, to influence Washington, in addition to some of those horrible events that came his way, really sunk him. O'Neill talks about how upon entering office, he hit the ground running with an energy bill. Good. It was something badly needed at the time. And, and we have made corrections since Carter was president. Uh, the, the cars are more fuel efficient and, and the like. He wore that cardigan sweater everyone knows about and told people to turn down the thermostat. He then urged Americans to make energy conservation the moral equivalent of war. O'Neill liked this speech. He went to Carter and said, Great speech. Now, here's a few congressmen I'd like you to call. Keep the pressure on if you want your bill to pass. And he said President Carter turned and told him, no, I made a rational argument and people will do the right thing. Then O'Neill was saying when the energy bill came from the White House, it was enormous and it involved sacrifices that just weren't going to get passed realistically in that Congress. It pitted states against each other. It would take on the oil and auto industries who had strong lobbyists on the Hill without any compensating benefits for members from, say, Michigan or Texas who might have to suffer there. O'Neill actually managed to pass the Carter bill by a good margin, too passed it in the House with some crafty legislative tricks. But the Senate watered down Carter's energy bill. So visionary policy, we know how important an energy policy is needed now that we've seen spike ups in energy costs again at different times. American voters judge a president not by how visionary they are, unfortunately or fortunately, but how successful they are. In 1980, they didn't feel like he was in control, and the hostage crisis and the failed rescue attempts certainly made that worse, which he did not solve before the election. It's difficult to imagine what could have been done once that rescue attempt failed that would have kept the hostages alive. I mean, of course, you could have bombed Tehran, right? But they would have killed the hostages. So he didn't have a lot of options in that one, but nonetheless, Carter suffered. Is it fair to blame a president, right, for what Congress should have done, passing legislation? Well, it is to some degree, I think, because the Constitution, while separating the president from Congress as a branch, Inserts the president back into the legislative process, and in, in three ways. The most known, of course, the veto of legislation, but it's also the ability to speak from time to time, and with that, to suggest legislation to Congress, and the ability to call Congress into special session. In those ways, the president is very much involved in what Congress does, and it's, while it is a separate branch, it's not to be ignored. So, a president. Can't you know go without responsibility for bills being passed? Though the kind of A to Z management that a White House has today of bills is probably not something that the constitutional conventioners imagined. I do think, of course, that voters blame a president for bad events that are beyond their control. That's certainly something that hit Carter. It's hard to imagine Carter being re- reelected under any circumstance. But here's a. a I think an interesting consideration about this. If part of the problem was Carter was not in control and voters perceived him to be out of control, and I believe that, part of his troubles with O'Neill, Ted Kennedy, and others on the Hill were based on him not wanting to spend as much money as his congressional Democrats did. With hindsight, a little what if we can imagine if he just went along with Tip O'Neill and Ted Kennedy and began all those programs and instituted a very liberal agenda that probably would have gotten passed through Congress at that time in 1977. You know, more spending programs, a larger debt than we even have now because it would have started bigger earlier. But if he acquiesced, then the trade-off is maybe Carter would have been seen as a president in control of Congress, in control of events in Washington, you know, a master of legislation. And by virtue of that, seen as a leader. So it is odd the way things work out. By being somewhat conservative, at least within the scope of the Democratic Party of the 1970s, he gave up his license to be a leader. Even there, I believe, the Iran crisis and the economy at the time would have ensured a one term for Carter. Remember, we had president that resigned, one president with partial term, and then Carter with a single term. I think even a sympathetic historical look back at Jimmy Carter, you know, and and saying, "Hey, this is what he tried to do." It's hard not to say whether you're in 1980 or say it now in 2012 to say that he was a good performing president or that uh, we would like to see a president like that now unable to get anything passed in Congress, not seen as influencing events in the nation capital or in the world. And I think something else. There's a whole different factor that separates us from understanding the 1970s and its politics at all. Some of you listening, of course, were living during that decade, but, you know, memories uh, fail. It's probably hard to remember a little. I mean, high inflation and high interest rates are very different than anything we've experienced recently. They create a set of politics that we probably can't understand. Double-digit. Prices going up, double-digits and interest rates making things very difficult to buy on credit. We haven't seen it. We've been through two recessions recently, but interest rates have always been low, and inflation on some items like gas, it, it goes up, but generally it's lower, and during the recession, some prices actually went down. Prices going up double digits each year. That just sunk. Nixon, Ford, Carter, among other factors. I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes just as you prepare for space travel by going into a low gravity chamber. I think for historical understanding of the 1970s, we need a high inflation, high interest rate chamber. Maybe yeah, there's a software that can be devised to kind of do a simulation of that. And then you can see how angry you get at the president. One of the funniest movies ever made, in my opinion, is Used Cars, 1980. And in it, the guys, well, David Lander and Michael McKean, you know as Lenny and Squiggy from Laverne and Shirley, but in this show, they're two TV jammers. They jam President Carter's speech, just as he's saying, what can we do about inflation? The movie gives you some idea about the anger aimed at government generally, and it's also a great laugh. Now, when I start giving out movie suggestions, I think that's the time to wrap it up. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com The archive is fourteen ninety nine, and talk about low inflation. It has not gone up for a while. And you get lots of hours and almost everything we've recorded since 2006 now. A lot of subjects. If you like the program, please tell somebody about it. You can comment on iTunes. You can uh, like the comments that you see on iTunes. That's very helpful to vote for the good comments. Mention on your blog,